0: Good. Well, good morning. Oh, I love being here. It's so good to see you all. I'm particularly good to see you, Steve, up on your feet and about. It's good. We've, uh, we've been praying for you over in Hastings as well. It's good to have that as family. Um, and it's good for me to be able to come and just kind of enjoy the Word of God with you and to share that with you. Isn't it so good? Isn't it such a privilege to have this? To have the Word of God, uh, to kind of see what God's heart is and what His plans and purposes are for us uh, as a people, um, as Claire said, I'm going to be uh, continuing what Paul started last week, which is a new preach series uh, on the Minor Prophets, um, so I don't know so many of you that well, so there may be some new people here, those people who don't know their Bible particularly well. The Bible is a collection of lots of books, and uh, they're actually grouped in, in different ways, so the first five books in the Bible, the Pentateuch, they're, they're all kind of attributed to a guy, Moses, and it basically establishes God's heart for people. Actually, God made us, and he wants to be with us. And God sets aside a a group of people, the Israelite people, through Abraham. And he says, I want to love you, and I want to pour my blessing on you. But you're going to have me as your God. So therefore, I want you to worship me and love me, and I want you to honor me with your whole heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then once you get through those kind of books, you get some historical books. So people like Joshua, there's kings in there, chronicles, those kind of things, which basically outlay this story of how God has this people and then we have some kind of wisdom uh, books, poetic books like Psalms, um, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, some really soppy stuff in there. Uh, the real kind of like coaster uh, placemat kind of stuff in there. And then after that, we end up with the prophets. So we've got some major prophets. You've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, those kind of things. And then we've actually got 12 minor prophets. Now, we're only looking at six in this series because we've got six weeks through the summer but we're just picking six of these minor prophets to be able to look at well what is god's heart through these prophets what what is it that we can learn for us today so you might be thinking well all right we've got the epistles we've got the new testament we've got so much rich stuff in there why do we want to look back at some of these other maybe more probably the books that you wouldn't turn in your morning reading and say i'm going to i'm going to look at hosea i'm going to look at amos or any of those kind of things but it says in the Bible that all scripture is given, it's given, inspired by God for a number of things, but including doctrine, which means if we really want to get a good understanding of what God is like, we want to look through the whole of scripture, and uh, also I, I do feel that as we go through this series, my heart, my hope, my intention is, our intention is that you would better understand what God's love is for you, that you'll better understand the gospel, the story that you're a part of, actually this story that we're going to look at even today through the life of Hosea is your story as well. God is still a God who pursues and redeems people. So Paul, looked like, uh, last week, looked at the prophet Amos, and today we're going to be looking at the prophet Hosea. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn uh, to the book of Hosea with me. Um, and for the, uh, while you're doing that, I'm just going to put it into a bit of uh, context for you. Uh, this guy, this dude, Hosea, because it's, it's a crazy book. It's, I've actually thoroughly enjoyed studying it. Um, so Hosea lived in the latter part of the kind of 8th century BC, all right? So this is 750, 780 years before Jesus is on the scene. And, well, you can see here on this timeline, you've got Amos, who Paul spoke about last week, and then Hosea, who comes just after it. They're, actually, they, they probably would have been alive, maybe, just that, well, they would have been some kind of overlink for a short period of time. Although Hosea is probably a couple of generations, a few generations younger than Amos and certainly would have prophesied on behalf of God later than um, Amos did. And both of them were prophesying, Hosea is prophesying to the same kind of group of people, this group of Israel, this kind of northern section of the, of the two groups um, as well as Amos did. So I don't know if anyone was here a few weeks ago when Paul spoke um, on one generation commending God's works to another and he talked about three kings So we had David, we had Solomon, and then a third one. Anyone remember his name? Rehoboam, all right? And and Paul was saying how within just three generations, people can go, a nation can go from having God right in the center to actually just in three generations, God being on the sidelines and sin creeping in. Well, I want you to know that this time, when Amos and Isaiah, this is 200 years from that point where it's just gone from bad to worse for the people of Israel and Judah. At Rehoboam's time, they actually split. So this is where you've got kingdom divides, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and this book is written to this people of Ephraim, or Israel, and that's what we've come to uh, today. So we see that God is so patient, all right, he is so patient, all right, listen, this is a couple of hundred years of God's people going wayward and doing their own things, and then God chooses to speak up to the people of Israel. We're not going to read all 14 chapters um, of Isaiah today, otherwise we'd we'll be here all day, um, But we are going to focus on the first three, or bits of the first three, because the first three chapters are like the abstract of the whole piece, if you like. So there's 14 chapters, and you can read all of it, but actually a lot of the key things are contained within the first three chapters. So that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to look at the problem of sin in Israel, which is highlighted in those first three chapters. We're going to look at the consequence of sin for Israel and then we're going to look at God's intention to pursue his people, Israel. And then finally, how his plan to redeem his people, Israel, come about. So why don't you turn to Hosea chapter 1. If you haven't got your Bibles, you can uh, see it uh, on the screen there. We're going to start with Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. I hope you strap yourself in because we're on for a ride. It says this, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself, a wife of whoredom." and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You can imagine when I was given this book and I read it for the first time, I got to verse 2 and I text Andrew just saying, I've got questions already. But this, so, this is, so let me just explain, right, the context of this book. God approaches a guy called Hosea, and God is going to speak through this guy, Hosea, but before giving a word to him he asked Hosea to go and do something pretty radical, right? Pretty radical. Find a whore, find a prostitute who will no doubt be unfaithful to you, but I want you to go and I want you to marry her. I want you to love her. I want you to support her as a husband. Now, It's not uncommon, if you know your Old Testament, it's not uncommon for God to actually um, ask people to do things or for people's lives to, I guess, illustrate something what God is wanting to do in the people of Israel. So it might be they refrain from doing something or they go and wash in a certain way or do something which is a picture, an illustration of what God is doing in the bigger picture. This is definitely on the more radical side of the stage. Like, I don't know what Hosea was thinking but God says, find a whore, an active prostitute, marry her. And he says, while you're at it, have some kids as well. All right? All right, now what's going on? So God is going to give a word to the people of Israel. But he doesn't just want Hosea to go and just say it. He want, he's going to have Hosea live it. He wants Hosea to feel it. He says, Jose, you're going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to speak to this people of Israel. But actually, I want you to be involved in this. I want you to feel what I feel. I want you to experience what it is to have someone that you love be unfaithful like Israel have been to me. This is what's going to happen through this story. It's an incredible, I say story, it's, this is a real life thing. And so... He wants Hosea to see the problem of Israel's sin for what it is. And then he's going to show the consequences of that sin through Hosea's life. Lucky him. I just, I think we live surrounded by sin every day. And if we're not careful, we can actually get used to sin. We could even make allowances for certain sin in certain ways. And you know, it would have been no different for Israel in that day. God was there somewhere on the sidelines, but God was not center place. Worshipping Baal, doing all the things that he did. They had a lot of idol worship. And I think what God wants to do through Hosea's life as an example is actually to really show the seriousness, the severity of sin for what it is. He wants Hosea to experience that. Israel has committed great whoredom by forsaking the Lord, he says. Hosea, you need to understand what it's like to commit yourself to someone who then sells themselves to neighbors down the street. <laughs> like, you, you, really, you, you need to understand something of the pain and the anguish to give yourself wholeheartedly to someone, only for them to be someone else's whore on another night of the week. That's what he's asking Hosea to do. God is going to use Hosea's life as a living, breathing example of what Israel has done to God over now hundreds of years with God waiting patiently for them. But it's also a story of how God is going to pursue her and how God is going to redeem her back again. And this is all played out in the life of Hosea and his wife. So God approaches this prophet Hosea and this is, what's, this is what happens. So Hosea is obedient to God. Um, And he finds and marries this prostitute called Goma. I have no idea what the vetting process for this was. I have no idea. I don't know whether he just went down the red light district and kind of just saw who was available. I don't know. But something I do want you to know is this. He loved her. I'm not just saying he made an active decision to love. No, I mean God put something in his heart where his heart was entwined with hers. He loved her. It says, uh, it talks about their sweet embrace in chapter 3, which is not talking just about sexual union. What, it's, it's talking about something that, that kind of the Hebrew word means to be knitted to or entwined with. This is something much more than just, I'll oh, just, passive obedience, I'll just go and do what God says. No, actually, this guy has, this guy really loves this woman. His heart is for her. He's invested in this relationship. And I think he really needed to in order to fully understand what God has been going through for the last 100 years, 200 years. Hosea really does need to have love in his heart for this prostitute in order to really fully understand and comprehend what the issue of what's going on with the Israelite people and God. And we see how Goma, this lady Goma that he falls in love with, goes on to have a son with Hosea. In fact, there's going to be three children, right? We know that the first one is definitely his. The other two, we're not entirely sure. Commentators disagree. I suppose there's not much real way of telling, is there? But you've you've basically got the first one. But this is what's interesting, right? God is going to be very particular about what these three children are going to be called. All right? Very particular. Because in biblical times, names meant something, right? There's lots of cultures today, many cultures maybe that you're from where names have real significant meaning. Actually, if you name someone, something, it's, it's born out of an experience or born out of a hope of something about that person. And it's, it's no different. When God names people in the Bible, it carries significance because it has something of a meaning of what's going to happen or what God's intention is. Does anyone in here, just out of interest, know what their name means? Yeah? <laughs> Jeff, salt of life. Uh, yeah, go on, Steve. Crown. Crown. Brilliant. Sarah. Princess. Or, yeah, lady. Noble woman. That's a good one, isn't it? That's on my list here. Yeah, go on. Soldier. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, so there's lots of names in the Bible. So here's a few. So God says to Abraham, You're not going to be called Abraham anymore. You're going to be called Abraham. Why? Because there's something in the meaning. It means father of many, father of multitude. This is something of a promise of what's going to come about for Abraham. So we've had Sarah, Elizabeth. Anyone, Elizabeth here? Hey, we got, wow, I have that. Elizabeth, Lizzie, Izzy means my God is my oath. That's a good one, eh? God's my oath. Any Johns here or any derivatives from that? Joe, Joanna, Johan, any of those kind of things means Yahweh is gracious. Any Joshua's? Joshua means Yahweh is my salvation. Right? Names which means something. So God says, right, you're going to have three kids, and I'm going to give you some specific names for these kids. And he says this. This is what he says. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblain, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Say Jezreel. Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Okay, so, stay with me. Gomer's going to have three children, all right? This prostitute and Hosea's wife have three children, and they're going to represent, if you like, the consequences of Israel's whoredom, the fruit of whoredom by forsaking God and being unfaithful to him, all right? And the first name is Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is a name of a city which you can actually read about a couple of hundred years before in 1 Kings, I think. is 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 19. And there's this God's king, King Jehu, who basically king, he kills another king from a different nation. He incites Jezebel to be pushed out of a window, so she actually gets eaten by dogs. All that's left is her hands and her feet and her head. It's a pretty gruesome story. But then this King Jehu... He then goes out and he basically kills all the princes and the royalty in the land, 72 people in all, and he stacks up their heads in two piles on the entrance of the city. All right? Like, really horrific stuff. And this, this Israelite king, Jehu, he, he actually set out to do something for God, but in the end it displeases God with the way that he did it. It, it was reckless and it was sinful. And even 200 years later, God says... I want you to name your first child Jezreel because you need to know that there are consequences for your sin even 200 years later. Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. You've got to know that sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. In fact, from that story there, doing things for God, but under our own motives and for our own purposes, always bears consequences. And you know, we can put ourselves in this story, in this moment of the story, because God says here that you're either with me in covenant relationship with me, or actually you've turned your back on the covenant relationship with God, and you are like a whore. You are whoring yourself out, is what he says. That's what the people of Israel have done. God is so patient, but that patience is to lead us to repentance. It's to lead us to, from our waywardness to going back to a faithful husband and saying, God, you're my faithful man. But for 200 years, the people haven't done this. So what does God say? I'm going to put an end to the people of Israel. So he names the first child Jezreel. Then Goma bears another child, and it's a beautiful little girl. And you could imagine after the first one, Goma's there with her kind of baby books, you know, the A to Z of baby names. And she's there thinking, well, I don't know, Sarah, that would be a beautiful name. What about Rebecca? Maybe, Hey, Hosea, how about one are these short names like Joy or Hope? How about Grace? I love, I've always loved the name Grace. God says, name her No Mercy. <laughs> that didn't go down well. No mercy, God says. Do you think he's trying to make a point? Why? Because I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. Another consequence of going your own way. At some point, God's grace, his mercy is going to come to an end. He says, I will no longer have mercy. And just when you think God has made his point, along comes a third child, a son, and God gives him a right doozy, I'll tell you. Name him, not my people. Can you imagine that? What's your name, Jeff? What's your name? Not my people. Why? Because for you are not my people and I am not your God. Wow. This is the consequence for Israel for turning their back on God and living a life of whoredom. He says, you are not my people. So what's happening here? God is saying that the fruit born of whoredom and going your own way is judgment and end to mercy and complete separation from God. That was, that was, what was it, the situation for the Israelite people. Do you know what? That is actually the situation for all humanity. God is so patient. God is so loving. But the consequences of our sin is actually we, what we do is we separate ourselves off eternally, ultimately, from God, the one who has our best heart. Here we have the problem of Israel played out in Hosea's life and the clear consequences of their sin and their waywardness. Now, in fact, it gets much worse, by the way, because in the end, Gomer, his wife, actually ends up living with another guy. So this is Hosea's wife. Now, living with someone else down the street, living a completely separate life. an adulteress with another man. All right, this is, Remember, this isn't a story. This is real life playing out as a prophetic model of what Israelites have done to God. God chose them. Right? What a moving emotive picture of what God is doing here. I chose them. God loved them. God saved them. God made covenant promises with them. And they've gone and jumped in bed with another God, Baal. Basically, what he's that's the illustration, that's the analogy he's using. They've, they've basically jumped ship with someone else. And I think it's probably at this moment, I think it's in this moment that Hosea probably comes to a full realization and understanding of the pain and the anguish that God has been in for hundreds of years. I think Hosea, in this moment, when the love of his life has just gone and left and is now living with another man. I think it's in this moment that Hosea understands the pain and anguish that God has been feeling. We've got to understand this. We've got to somehow grapple with what it is that's going on here. Hosea is experiencing just some of the pain that God feels when his people leave and turn to idols. When, When we choose every time to walk away from him and unite with someone or something else and not him. That's the consequence of our sin. But then what follows is probably, you know, I've never really studied Hosea before the last couple of weeks. I think it's probably one of the most tender and beautiful love songs in the Bible. And it's sung by God over this people Israel. It says this, chapter 2, verse 14. And do you know what? If you don't know God, this is what he would sing over you today. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This, this whore of a wife living in someone else's house. I'm going to draw her into the wilderness and I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. As at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Verse 23. And I will have mercy on who? No mercy. I'll have mercy or no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Hey, I want you to understand, with God, the consequences for our sin is never the end of the story. (laughs) Do you hear that? The consequences of sin, that's never the end. Why? Because God pursues his people. God pursues his people, and he God pursues us. Time and time again throughout this book we have this recurring theme of God saying this is the consequence of your sin but oh how I'm going to run after you. Oh how my heart is to pursue you and to win you back to myself. God pursues his people. Such gentle tender words. I'll allure her. I'll speak tenderly to her. Door of hope. Talks later on about make you lie down in safety. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness. Make you right again and in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. This is a promise of a God who wants to pursue those who have run away from him, a nation who would turn their back on him. And he says, I want you back. I will have you back, is what God says. So how does this play itself out in Hosea's life? This prophetic story for everyone to see. So Hosea, he's there real guy, in a real point of time, and his wife has gone with another guy, what does he do? Because he could have legally actually got both of them stoned. She was adulterous. She certainly could have got a divorce. He could have. But what does God say? He says this in chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Talking about Gomer. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Now, this this is remarkable, right? Hosea is now, he's going to actually go so far as he's going to buy her back. He's not just going to give her an offer. He's actually going to go and purchase her freedom to bring her back. So it says this in verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethek of barley and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. Just imagine, Hosea goes to the lover of his wife and he pays him to, for a freedom to get her back. To get her back. When you just think for a moment on what God asked Hosea to do here, you get a glimpse into what God's love for us in our wretchedness is like. She was faithless. All along, finally gone off with another man, but God commands him to love her. He says, go again, love her, get her back. And not just go and get her, but be willing to pay in order to get her back. John Piper says this, if that was not almost an emotional impossibility in itself, to have to go and do that. Hosea couldn't even afford it, so he paid half in cash and half in barley. Now, listen to this. This is interesting. He says, the total amounted to what Exodus 21 says a female slave costs. He says this, Gomer had evidently sunk to the lowest possible level, and God says to Hosea, get her back. Whatever it costs, get her back. The problem with sin is that it owns you. That's the problem with sin. You think you have the freedom to sleep here and sleep there. I don't know what her intention was with even being with this other go guy, but before long, what sin does? It robs from you until all you're left is a value of a slave woman. You've become slave to the very thing you once thought brought you freedom. That's what sin does. It owns you. All sin leads to a life of slavery. And in this case, in the case for each and every one of us, the only way you can be free is to be brought back by someone who is willing and wanting to pay for you. This is this is what God tells Hosea to do. Go pay for her freedom, bring her back, restore her again. Why? Because God, this is God's promise to the people of Israel is that I'm going to send a payment. That means that I'm going to redeem you back. And do you know it's the same payment for us? God's not talking about paying in silver. God's not talking about paying in barley. He's talking about the very cost of his one and only son, Jesus, on the cross. This is what it costs to buy us back. The price of your freedom from a slavery of sin, the consequences of what Goma went through, what Israel are going through, what we would go through, had it not been for Jesus on the cross, saying, I will pay the price for you. It's just an incredible gospel story all the way throughout. You think you understand grace. You read about Gomer, you put yourself in the story. Just in case you're under any disillusion as to who you are in the story, you are Gomer. We are Gomer. We're, we're the ones that have turned our back and been unfaithful. And God's playing the part of Hosea, or Hosea playing the part of God, is the one who goes and he pays and redeems. That's what he does. He pursues and he redeems. And When we put ourselves in the story like that, it just leads you to say, God, what a grace. <laughs> what a grace. I, I haven't got anything to offer. But you know what, you can bring your shame and your guilt and you can come back to God and he can pay the full price for you. We've all found pleasure and satisfaction in places and have ended up becoming slaves to the very things we once thought gave us freedom. And the only way we could be free was if God, our husband-in-waiting, the one who made us, loved us, wants us, would pay the very high price that our sin demands to bring us home. Powerful story, isn't it, Hosea? I don't think Hosea really, truly felt or experienced half, a tenth, a hundredth of what God has in his heart for you. His love for you far exceeds what Hosea's love was for his wife. The pain and anguish that that happens in God's heart when people turn their back on him and say, no, I'm going to go my own way even with the consequences of being completely separated from the life source of God. But you know, God's heart to pursue us, God's hope and heart to redeem us, is far beyond anything that we could ever hope for in our hearts or do. It's Jesus dying on the cross for our sin. When, uh, when Jesus was here, He was talking about the bread. And the bread represents his body. This is the price that was paid. The cost. It wasn't silver or barley. It was Jesus' body. It says this in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He broke it. This is Jesus' body broken for you. The payment for our whoredom. And after he'd given thanks, he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he took the cup. Took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to break bread together. We're going to remember not just the reality that Hosea experienced in our sin. Not only the consequence of our sin, but actually we're going to remember the loving saviour who died on a cross. So that just like Goma, who was bought freedom to bring her home, we can remember what God has done for us and say, God, thank you that you paid the price for my freedom. That although I've gone so low to the level of just being like a slave, slave to my sin, you've purchased my freedom and you've brought me into your family. Why don't we just close our eyes? In fact, why don't we stand? Let's stand together. Get a little bit active. I know that we're nearly out of time. I'm just going to pray. I just want to thank God for my salvation. You can do the same. And then we're going to break bread. I don't think we're going to sing a song straight away, Certainly, we're just going to give a bit of space and time for you to be able to just do this, either in couples or you can do in families. You can just do it with the people around you. It doesn't matter. That if you don't know Jesus, don't take the bread and wine because it means nothing to you. But for the rest of us, we're just going to break this bread and take this wine and remember what He's done. God, I just want to thank you that you love me. Oh Lord, I want to thank you that you pursued your people and you won her back. You redeemed her, you didn't divorce her. You didn't stone her. You went and you paid a great price, the blood of your son, in order that we may come home. And Lord, thank you that we're no longer slaves. But Lord, thank you that we're children of the living God. Thank you that we're built together as a wonderful temple of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here right now. And thank you that we are a beautiful bride to a faithful, loving husband. And today, Lord, we say if there's any sin in our lives, would you highlight it to us? We want to say we're so sorry. And we say today again, Lord, like we've done for some of us many times before, God, again I say you are still the Lord of my life. I still want you to be the center of every area of my life. And we say we love you. Amen. Amen. Why don't we just do it now? So I think bread and wine. Obviously, we've got a table over the front here. I think we've got a couple of tables. We've got a table there as well. So let's be active. Let's move around. You can pray. Thank God for one another. You can pray for one another. Can I just say as well, if if you feel, if someone comes to mind in this room that you feel that maybe you've got a bad relationship with, can I just say, this is a great time to sort that out. So do you mind if I just break bread with you? Just break bread together, thank God for that his body covers over all of those things. Just be in union with one another. Okay, let's do that now then. Just while camera plays quietly in the background.